This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. This is episode 48. uh, And this week, we are in conversation with Megan Ming Francis. Uh, Now, Megan is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington. Um, And I came across her particularly because of a really great paper um, that she brought out recently, which we talk about a lot uh, in the conversation to follow. Um, And that paper looks um, at the history of the interaction between a big liberal funder in the US in the early 20th century called the uh, the Garland Fund um, and the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, uh, the NAACP. Um, and particularly, it kind of raises questions about the the narrative that has traditionally been in place about the the NAACP's focus on education, which it was sort of latterly celebrated, and whether actually the Garland Fund played a very determinate role um, in kind of shifting that emphasis emphasis through the the power dynamics um, that there were in the relationship. Um, and she particularly introduces this idea of uh, movement capture when a funder can sort of overtly or in, inadvertently um, shift the emphasis of a, of a looser kind of network-based organisation. So it's a really fascinating paper. I'll put a link in it uh, in the show notes, and I thoroughly recommend that you go away and read it. Um, but certainly in the conversation, um, Megan you know, explained about the paper and what the focus of it was and, and what it said. Um, we had a good conversation uh, about some of the sort of historical specifics that it, that it brought up. Um, we talked about this uh, idea of movement capture and whether you know she thought that it was something that was kind of deliberate on the part of a funder or actually more worryingly perhaps whether it was just something that could happen as an unintended consequence of the power dynamic between uh, a funder and a recipient organisation and therefore something we need to guard against uh, more more sort of widely in the sector. Um, we talked about uh, the fact that the Garland Fund was a spend-down foundation and whether that kind of introduced time pressures that made them um, take decisions that kind of had a, a determinate role in in the relationship they had with the NAACP. We had a really interesting conversation um, about ego on the part of funders and whether that gets in the way of kind of genuine shifts of power towards grant recipients. Um, then we talked kind of more broadly about what she thought the um, the value of historical analysis is in telling us something about the kind of key challenges facing philanthropy and uh, and civil society in the modern day. Um, we talked, you know, I asked her some questions about whether she uh, thought that this idea of movement capture um, could be applied more widely and where where else we might go to look for examples of it. And uh, we touched on some issues about kind of um, historical methodology and whether. The, there would be a particular challenge in identifying movement capture because um, sort of looser networked organisations tend not to keep records, whereas big institutional funders do, and that kind of introduced a, an inequality in there. 
Um, so without further ado, um, let's go into the conversation. It's a really fascinating chat. I hope you all, all enjoy it as much as I did. Um, and I will be back at the end of the podcast to do a little bit of housekeeping. Okay. Okay, great. Um, well, I'm here with Megan Ming Francis. Hi, Megan. Hi, how are you? Oh, good, thank you. Yeah. Um, and Megan is uh, an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington. Um, and someone whose work I've come across, particularly because um, she's been working on issues around uh, civil rights movement in the US uh, and recently put out a paper that I can't recommend highly enough, um, looking at the relationship between the NAACP and the Garland Fund in the early 20th century, which I'm sure Megan's going to talk a lot more about in a minute. Um, maybe a good starting point would just be for you to give a bit of background on who you are and what your kind of research interests are and particularly how those uh, bring you to the, the issues around philanthropy. Okay, yeah, that'd be great. Um, so my research interests broadly are focused on um, understanding political and constitutional development at the end of the 19th and the kind of the beginning of the 20th century. Um, but specifically, I'm interested um, in civil rights activism and the long black freedom movement and wanting to understand the long struggle for rights in the United States. Um, and so the, the first book that I wrote examined the NAACP's campaign against racial violence in the first quarter of the 20th century. Um, and it really documents kind of a much more, I hope, <laughs> richer story about um, the NAACP's work in the area of fighting lynchings and mob violence. Um, though it led me to kind of a question about why did why do we understand um, the NAACP as an organization that focuses on, on education? Um, so I started to get really interested actually in the role of uh, foundation funders um, in the civil rights movement. Um, and so this led me to a greater focus on the role of funders in shifting the agenda of the, of the I'm sorry, um, of the NAACP. Um, and I have a broader focus on, especially in terms of the current Black Lives Matter movement, in wanting to understand the role of funders in movement activism. Why do activists and why do movements kind of shift their agendas at different times? Why do they, why do they change strategies? Um, but really to understand how Black political actors are thinking about dreaming and strategizing freedom. Great. And, and just to sort of dive into some of that paper, you, you've, you've said there about the, you know, a lot of the focus being about the relationship between funders and, and movements and kind of the, the way in which that dynamic can, can have an effect, particularly on the, the sort of focus of movements, which I think is a fascinating question at this moment in time. One of, one of the key things you talk about in the paper is the idea of movement capture. Can you, can you just sort of talk a bit about what that means? Yeah, so I was trying to figure out um, and to think much more about how do we, okay, well, let me, if I can back up a little bit here. Um, so the way that most legal historians and constitutional law scholars understand um, the, the Brown v. Board of Education litigation camp that, that produced that decision um, is that we all know that there was an organization called the Garland Fund, a funder that came early on in the 1930s and helped support the NAACP's um, litigation efforts around education desegregation. And that's the story. I mean, I've, I, in, in, at the end of high school, when I got interested in civil rights, undergrad, graduate school, that is always what I read about. Um, so I was trying to understand how it, it 
if that's the case, and seemingly the way in which it's always been presented as somewhat of a collaborative endeavor between the NAACP and the Garland Fund, that the NAACP was very much interested in this question about education, and the Garland Fund then came around to help support their efforts, and then they took these organizations together, the, the kind of the white-dominated Garland Fund and obviously the black-dominated NAACP, then changed constitutional and political history. It's a great story. Um, but it's not the full story, at least when I went into the archives. And when I went into the archives, I realized there was another story about how the NAACP was really focused on this question about racial violence. So I was trying to understand why did the NAACP shift like issue areas? Why if at least for a decade and a half of the organizations, let's say board minutes and, um, one of the focus of their activities was all around fighting mob violence and lynchings. And then there's kind of this sharp shift that happens um, to the issue of education. How might we understand that? Um, so I thought about, actually in part because of my, <laughs> my background in political science, um, thought a, a bit about the role of interest groups and how they try to persuade <laughs> members of Congress and or legislators um, to support their to, to support their causes. I also, of course, in understanding and thinking a lot more about the racial power dynamics that were that were at play at the end of the 1920s, early 1930s, um, really wanted to think much more about uh, racial power dynamics and kind of power asymmetries. Um, so with the help, and this is, I also want to shout out, sometimes in the peer review process, it can be useful, um, but really wanted to think much more about the role, think more, much more about capture um, and uh, applying ideas of capture to actually social movements um, and the civil rights movement in particular. And so the way in which I use uh, movement capture in this article um, is to think about the way that funders um, and people with resources can shift the agenda of, of marginalized groups, in this case, the NAACP. Um, sometimes I think they can do it intentionally, and sometimes, oftentimes, I think it can be unintentionally. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a really kind of fascinating way of crystallizing that. In One of the, the things you touch on in the article I'm, I'm really interested in is the question of whether this uh the movement capture is whether it's something that kind of reflects a deliberate desire on the part of the fund or as you say it's actually you know even with the best of intentions something that unconsciously happens because they can't help but reflect societal inequalities or power dynamics in in the the case of the garland fund and, and the NAACP, is is it the sort of the, the classic financial power dynamic between funder and grantee, or, or is, is the racial element kind of absolutely vital to understand as well? Oh, I think, uh, I think the racial element is very important to understand as well um, in terms of what happens between the Garland Fund and the NAACP. Um, I have a section, as you know, in the article, kind of focused on the, the racial innocence um, of this interaction between the Garland Fund um, and the NAACP that I think part of it is, let's say, kind of normal grantee and funder interaction between that type of uh, kind of asymmetry as relates to financial resources. But I think the other aspect here um, is that this is this is this is Jim Crow. This is when people, African-Americans in the United States are being lynched in the South as well as the North. Um and I don't think even with the even with the best of intentions, oftentimes <laughs> I, I've thought about this. These were the like this was these were the most progressive white people. 
<laughs> this was this was the radical white foundation. They were interested in labor. They thought like the revolution would happen in funding radical labor and education, right? So these were like, this is going to be as best as you're going to get <laughs> in terms of, if we think about today, in terms of progressive, let's say, a progressive uh, foundation. But even, even with these well-intentioned individuals, that still there is a way in which, right, the way in which institutionalized racism works is that they there was a certain amount of privilege that they had. And that even when James Weldon Johnson and uh, W.B. Du Bois from the NAACP um, kind of pushed back in their own ways, um, not as, let's say, overt as saying, we don't want this funding, but in their own ways, they couldn't see that. And I think that part of it is that they had racial blinders up and were unaware of the way in which racial power dynamics were at play in, in, in terms of eliminating what Walter White, what Du Bois, what James Weldon Johnson could actually say and protest kind of the shifting of their agenda. And, and does that, was that reflected to some extent in the shift towards uh, pursuing education and, and the eventual kind of campaign towards Brown versus Board of Education? Is there a sense in which education was a sort of easier subject for, for the, the white liberals in the Garland Fund to engage with rather than racial violence, which is something that might have been very difficult for them to truly empathise with because they didn't live under the same sort of threat of violence? Right. I don't think that they saw it as 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 important as the NAACP did, but I don't think it was so much as racial violence versus education as um, as much as we are interested in labor and education, and these are our goals. These are our interests, right? This is something, of course, that happens with, with the foundations today. We have our mission statement. These are these are what we want to do, and but we really like you as a grantee. We like you, um, and we like that you're able able to produce. Um, um, a lot with a little. And so we actually want, we want to keep you as a grantee, but we want you to work within our area, <laughs> right? So I, so I think that's actually more of what describes, because I don't really see anywhere in um, the papers of the Garland Fund where they think that racial violence is like, is not an issue. They do think it's an issue, but it's just not their issue. Right. Okay. No, I, I get you. That's yeah. That is an interesting uh, distinction. I think one of the the other things that you touch on uh, in the paper about the um, the power dynamic is that as well as it being financial, to some to some extent, the 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 position of the NAACP at the time seemed to be one where it was seen as sort of a bit too radical for for most funders mm-hmm. to engage with, and actually. I mean, I don't know whether it was explicit or implicit, but the Garland Fund you know, was able not only to say, look, we're the ones that have got the money, but also that they were bringing uh, a degree of legitimacy to what the NAACP were doing. And, and it seems as though that was slightly held over them as well. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I, I definitely think that is fair. I mean, I think that at this time, the NAACP had been operating, and this is now we're talking about 1928, 1929. They had been operating now for 20 years with little funding, without any big, that is a long time for a rights organization, for a black rights organization to be operating. Um, And they were barely, I often tell people, they were barely keeping the lights on, barely paying rent for their office in New York. Um, And I think that, you know, I think activism can wear 
individuals down and does. Um, fighting racism, racism is, is tiring today. So I definitely know it was tiring then. Um, but the Garland Fund, very much, they, this was, you know, we, we know Roger Baldwin, who then goes on to ACLU fame. He was head of the board um, for the Garland Fund. And these were important individuals. And it did offer them um, an, a, a kind of a level of, of, of credibility. But really, they were interested and excited that an organization with money would think about funding them with a large grant. And this is the thing that I also, also often say about the Garland Fund and the NAACP. It's not that the NAACP didn't think that education was a radical issue. Of course it was a radical issue. It just, like in the same thing that I just said before, it just wasn't their issue at that moment in time. It obviously became their issue. Um, but I, but you know that I have um, I have a critique about how it became their issue. Yeah, so. yeah, which I'd, I'd really you know, <laughs> like to, to come on to in some detail. Just one one sort of uh, final question on on that particular thing about the um, the dynamic, the sort of power dynamic there. One one thing that struck me in reading the paper, and and you know, please feel free to shoot me down if this is a totally <laughs> totally wrong interpretation, was to some extent the you know the NAACP seemed to have quite a lot of initial success pursuing its anti lynching agenda oh, yeah. through. Um, the the mechanism of legal defence, particularly you, you highlight the Moore versus Dempsey case. Was there was there any sense in which you know the Garland Fund saw that and they saw the success of the method and uh-huh. and thought, oh, this is great. But uh-huh. actually, then you know, I'm, uh-huh. I'm, I'm I'm imputing motives to them. But maybe they thought, <laughs> oh, maybe we could use that. But on our core issues, which are around education and labour, so actually the NAACP were slightly a victim of their own success in making the, the mechanism of legal defence work. That's exactly so. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. Um, uh, in terms of, yeah, I've actually never thought about it just like that. But that is the NAACP was incredibly effective. One of the it's 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 interesting when I first presented this now many years this article is a long time coming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you read the earlier version. I never thought that I would finish the longer version. I'm glad I did. Um, but I used to uh, that earlier version. People would say, "Come on, Megan, do you really think that there could have been a movement about racial violence?" That seems that 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 just that that just seems like a fairy tale type of civil rights goal. And and I kind of I had to sit with them because I received that pushback many times. And the interesting thing um, is because of all the NAACP's activism as with uh, like under Woodrow Wilson, Warren G. Harding and Congress passing an anti-lynching bill in the House of Representatives in 1922. um, And then, like you said, getting securing this landmark criminal procedure decision from the Supreme Court in 1923, from the NAACP's perspective, actually kind of the, the, the way to get civil rights and like all these successes were had in the area of racial violence. So if any area, at least, at least again, in the, at the mid 1920s, if any area was to be kind of like the main issue that would be successful for the NAACP at that time was racial violence. There was no legislation that actually guaranteed um, like education, desegregating education institutions or even equal funding, right? There was no big court case in 1923, 1925. Um, so what the Garland Fund did see, because they were interested in the NAACP as an organization, 
they really, they were excited about this Supreme Court decision in Moore v. Dempsey. That is kind of actually what they center the then uh, litigation strategy, which would lead to Brown v. Board of Education. They center it on the successes of the NAACP in pursuing change um, through through litigation. Um, but they just, like you said, they just didn't want... <laughs> <laughs> Not that they just wanted them to use that strategy and their expertise in the in like in courts um, on a different issue, right? Yeah, so. which is and and I, I want to. It seems like a natural point to come on to. You know, the, the there seems like a a point both in the paper and in the in the history where there's a kind of determinate shift that really, that mm. really results in that movement capture. And I think that you, you pick up on a few different sort of factors that are that are at play there that drove the Garland Fund finally to sort of move from a position where even if it wasn't directly focused on racial violence, was happy to fund it to some extent, to one where it started to exert more influence, kind of avert influence to shift away from that. Um one of the things I wanted to ask about there was, you know, one of the defining characteristics of the Garland Fund was that it was a limited life foundation. And, and mm-hmm. at that point, it seemed to be getting quite close to the point where its, it's uh, appointed life was going to end. Do you think, is there any extent to which the additional pressure that came from knowing that they had to distribute that last tranche of funds made them sort of uh, feel that they needed to do that effectively and that they wanted to double down on the things that they saw as their core issues? Oh, that's great. I actually have never received that question. Um, (laughs) I think that is actually part of what then led for them to change um, the way that they did grant making. They used to, uh, for your listeners, they they had a policy of only responding to request. And so indiv- like individual organizations would request money. They then um, change um, to a process in which they themselves would come up um, with ideas and, and initiatives. And I think that part of it being a spend down uh, a foundation was that they wanted something. They wanted a marquee issue, right? That they could say, we did this. We changed... We revolutionized labor. We got this huge Supreme Court case. We changed something. These again, these were radicals. And how can you have this 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 foundation and fund all these great causes and not have at least some type of radical change that you can point to? And I so I do think that was part of <laughs> a, a contributing factor, I should say, um, in 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 the focus of on the focus of the NAACP on this issue of, of education desegregation. Yeah. And, and there's a there's a great quote in, in your paper that you pick up, um, which ties into that. So I, I guess it, the limited life might have focused the minds of the, the members of the board of the Garland Fund on what they should do with the money. And there's a very mm-hmm. telling quote from Ernst. I can't remember what his uh, first name is, but bemoaning the fact it says, quote, there's little of genius in any of our plans, which <laughs> that seems to me so telling about the mindset of a funder, which is that they can be giving all this money away and it is demonstrably having an effect on the issue of racial violence. Yet right. he feels hard done by because he doesn't feel like they have ownership over it or anybody is going to see what they're doing as having a spark of genius oh. which is that's really interesting to me and i wonder whether you think that that's actually part of that power dynamic the sort of ego on the part of funders who you know to some extent want to see themselves as a recognizable part of the solution rather than fading into the background yeah oh absolutely um i think that was a huge part of um 
Morris Ernst, I, I, I believe, and he's going to be the main driver. He was the Garland Fund's board of directors were kind of divided up on a, on a number of different committees. Um, and so he was on it was called the Committee on Negro Work. Um, and so and he really was the driver behind the NAACP. Let's focus on them as an organization. They 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 are an, an, uh, an organization that creates change um, and let's have them go after the issue of education. Uh, but on this point about the genius, he really felt um, just that, like, at least in terms of the the organizations and the people that they funded, that they did not at all create the change that he wanted to see. And there was a sense for uh, for him, at least I think so, that he was the expert, that he, that he would be some grand architect of revolutionary change. Um, I think that's, I, I, I remember reading <laughs> that sentence, there was a little genius um, in any of our plans, and like sitting back in my chair um, at the audacity of it, right? Because there's, there's, they are funding so many causes that are genius, actually, <laughs> but that perhaps just don't have the type of impact and or, I mean, also one of the things that I think is, is true that was true then and is true now is that when you want or if you desire a type of radical transformative change, that that takes a long time. Um, and I think a lot of times um, funders back then and now um, are are unaware of how long transformative change takes in order to undo these types of institutions that breed inequality, whether it's economics and or race or gender, um, kind of supporting people and organizations that are doing that difficult work, it's not a quick fix. And I think that at least in his time at the Garland Fund, Morris Ernst didn't see that change. So he was like, let's do something else so I can see that change. Um, and there's also, right, just this hubris in terms of that, he asked somebody who is not feeling the harms of, of labor, um, that is somebody who is not feeling the harms of, of civil rights, of education, somebody who is very privileged, would be in a better place to design a program, craft a program to lead towards emancipation or freedom. It's, it's fascinating. It is. That, that combination of impatience and ego is, is incredible. And particularly, you know, one of the sort of big conversations in the world, the foundation world, the world of philanthropy at the moment is about how you can get shifts of power as well as just resources and things like participatory grant making but if you know if the mindset of a funder is that they have to be front and center and kind of you know be given credit for the solution it seems like it's going to be very difficult to get that kind of shift of power oh absolutely absolutely um i just um there's a few things i wanted to ask you when you were talking you know there about the this the situation around the the NAACP um uh, Garland and and this kind of you know difficulty of being able to accept that transformative change might take longer and one of the the other examples it reminded me of the kind of well-known examples of the role of philanthropy in the civil rights movement is um Judith Rosenwald um and and I'm thinking here I mean taking us off on a tangent I'm thinking more about this sort of second phase of what he did through the Rosenwald uh fund where he gave kind of individual small donations to African-American kind of artists and, and scientists and social leaders, which, 
you know, I, I think there's a whole conversation about whether Rosenwald's role in that has been overplayed, which we, I'm sure we can't go into now. But it, it just seems that's an interesting one because it seems more like, you know, that kind of risk-taking philanthropy where there wasn't a particular end in sight um, and actually, you know, some acceptance of a much longer-term payout. And I know some people would craft that narrative as that being quite an important factor in the sort of eventual rise of a kind of a, a group of leaders who were very important in the subsequent civil rights movement is is do you do you have any sympathy with that or do you have a totally different take i'd be really interested <laughs> oh i i haven't thought as much about this as i would like to have um i think that in terms of you're asking a question about some of his in the second phase some of his grants specifically to individual african americans uh the um, <laughs> um, I mean, is your question about what do I think of that type of grant making? Yeah, just that. Um, do, do you think that that is a? Uh, do you think that that is more likely to avoid the 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 criticism that um, that it's not uh, patient enough to to genuinely achieve transformative change? I'm just sort of as a, as a comparison of a different yeah. philanthropic approach to funding to civil right. rights. Yeah, no, I, I, so one of the things that I am actually swayed about and the other thing that I spent a lot of time thinking about, so the, the narrative, I'm going to digress and then I'm going to come forward to try to address this. Uh, the narrative about the collaborative narrative between the NAACP and the Garland Fund um, that I think is the, kind of the accepted narrative uh, is one that hinges on W.B. Du Bois um, and writing in 1925 and requesting money from the Garland Fund um, to like this education study. Um, <clears throat> and so that's pretty much anchored kind of the way in which we understand the NAACP's relationship with the Garland Fund. <clears throat> What's interesting um, though, is that w, Du Bois was actually really critical um, of white foundations and funders in the area of education who, at, who in many ways had strings attached to their funding. And so I have in my article, he was specifically um, critical uh, uh, of the General Education Board, and I think believe that was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, as well as what the Phelps Stokes Fund was doing um, in the South around education, because he didn't like how oftentimes there were strings attached. But he was in support of um, grants, it, in which there would be very few or no strings attached, so type of block grants. And so moving forward to what you were talking about in terms of Rosenwald's grants to individual African-Americans, this seems to be more of that model. In terms of here's a block grant, um, I'm not trying to necessarily have ties connected to this grant um, and just to support the work that they are doing. Um, and so I do think that's a, kind of a better model, but that's also... Right. We know this for the most part, not a sustainable model. Normally that's a one off. Right. Um, and so I do think one of the Carter questions, which is I, I, I'm a political scientist who does history, so I'm not the policy person that prescribes. <laughs> but I think one of the questions that we need to think much more about is for foundations who fund um, organizations and individuals over a long period of time. Um, how do we rethink their relationship? Um with with grantees um, and how do we do it in a way that lessens um, the process of movement capture and or the way in which we know for sure that power asymmetries um, are often at play between grantees and funders yeah absolutely and I, and I think you know at the moment there's lots of people 
having those sorts of conversations uh, about you know the way in which you can fund genuine long-term change or systems change and whether that means that you have to get away from sort of shorter term metrics and focuses on on impact i guess that leads on to one of the the kind of broader questions i wanted to ask you off the the back of the work you've done um both in terms of the the kind of the phenomenon of movement capture and more broadly in terms of the funder grantee dynamics what do you think we can take useful lessons from from this this one relationship or you know because i guess there's a question about this sort of thing's fascinating and i think really gives you some insight but you you have to be slightly careful about directly taking lessons from one historical example so what's your take on kind of how we can usefully use this insight right so um this is definitely a historical case uh, case study. My senses and my hope, though, um, is that this provides... A, I, I'm also somebody, again, who uses historical methodology, so I really, truly do believe um, that history can light a way out of the present darkness. I think that um, history informs so much of what we do right now um, in terms of especially funding around social movements. Um, and I think that one of the... One of the aspects, especially in terms of um, funding and philanthropy in the United States that is focused on racial justice, is that in so many ways, the NAACP's kind of securing of uh, Brown v. Board and the Garland Fund's support of that is often held up as a model, a celebratory model of what can happen in terms of liberal philanthropy. Um, and, and, I, and I think that needs to be troubled um, a lot. Um, and so in writing this, the lesson isn't that <laughs> the lesson surely is not that funders should not fund activists, that funders always ruin movements. But I think that it's a cautionary tale um, that especially um, if if ne- I don't think history necessarily um, repeats because we're much further in terms of progress than we were in the past. But the fight for the, the fight for black lives. Um, in terms of freedom and or protection from state violence, as well as individual violence, it's not a completely new fight, right? So the question for me becomes, or at least what I hope might be a takeaway from this study, um, is how can funders and also those who are receiving grants um, think much more critically about their relationship? Um, How can we, I don't, I, I don't know if we, if, the power dynamics can never be completely if they're I, don't, I think that they're just there but like i think that part of the process in writing this is to create awareness about that for funders who are who who are involved in um funding social movements right now and or activists as well as to rethink hopefully this is not explicitly in the paper but to rethink the process of change um and to think about and to encourage especially those funders who fund movements over a long period of time um, to rethink kind of the, the metrics of, let's say, program evaluation or success. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think I'm really sort of, you know, fascinated both in the lessons of the current context and also where else we might look historically for similar examples to try and tease out movement yeah. capture. Um, on, on that note, one question I had was it, it seemed as though 
you know, you were in a, a fortunate position in some ways, although you obviously had to do a lot of hard work to, to get there, but <laughs> but that you had that uh, power imbalance between the funder and the, the grantee, but the, the NAACP actually kept, you know, voluminous records themselves, so you were able to compare and contrast. Do you think in some other instances where movement capture might have happened, it the, there might be a sort of archival imbalance as well because the, you know, the network or the movement is less likely to have kept records, so it'll be... And in those cases, how do you think we might be able to to stack up the the question of movement capture? Oh, so I love this question. This is definitely a question about historical methodology as mm. well as see one of the things also in terms of doing this work and trying to re-narrate the story that we think we know well, but in a different way, has been kind of me grappling with 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 stories um, and, and, and the archives and thinking much more than I think I have ever really thought about, despite myself doing historical work, about the power imbalance in archival research. And so, so much of the stories that we know are dependent on the sources that are available as well as researchers, many of which are privileged, who have come later and told these stories and or the accounts of people, oftentimes money people, who write memoirs, right, and then, and then get them published. Um, and so I... I'm, I was lucky, absolutely. The NAACP, for example, they, it's the largest collection of the Library of Congress. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it is a tremendous a kind of insight into the workings of the longest um, and the oldest civil rights organization in the United States. Now, um, in terms of wanting to understand different other, let's say, Black rights movements, LGBTQIA movements, and let's say gender um, who perhaps don't, who perhaps haven't kept um, a kind of as copious notes as the NAACP did. I think that that is going to be difficult, and that that is part of the reason why perhaps we don't have more stories that focus on movement capture and or co-optation of of, of strategies or the co-optation of agendas um, of groups. But I. You know, a question, though, in terms of does that mean that we don't tell these stories? No. Um, But it does mean that I think that especially depending on where the organization is and depending on uh, kind of the time frame that we are attuned to reading archives. And let's say um, let's say if it is the Rockefeller archives or the Carnegie archives, um, that we read them differently and we read them for absences and we just don't take everything that people in power say as the as the as the truth um always and i think that's for me one of the things um why i kind of was able to tell a different story through the NAACP and the Garland Fund archives is because um i questioned a lot of what the Garland Fund wrote down um but without i think an alternative story it is or, or alternative archives it's difficult However, I am emboldened and I think hopeful and in part inspired by the work of post-colonial and feminist scholars who have been able to write amazing, beautiful, tragic and histories of, of, of the period of slavery um, and different areas around the world. So that, that's also like I, it's difficult, but I know that it can be done. But it's just a matter of kind of applying a different lens to the way in which we do archival research. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it'll be, I'm really fascinated to see, you know, where you or other people kind of take the approach and the methodology that, that you've got there, where there are opportunities to do it, because I'm sure there are many sort of parallel stories in, in areas, as you mentioned there, the kind of the, the feminist movements and in the sort of 60s and 70s, it strikes right. me that, you know, a lot yes. of funders like the Ford Foundation and others came in and people have have done critiques of the role they played, but it'd be really interesting mm-hmm. to try and get that sort of dual dynamic by finding the archives to tell the other side of the story. Um, uh, I'm, I'm aware that you that you need to go fairly soon, Megan, so I don't want to take too much more of your time. I just wanted to ask um, whether there's anything, you know, you'd particularly like to flag up that you're working on that you've got coming up? So, especially as it relates to philanthropy, the, the uh, paper, it's going to be a long-term paper, more years. As <laughs> um, I'm interested, actually, in the contemporary movement for Black Lives. Um, and so the Black Lives Matter movement, um, one of the things that I have found really interesting is that during the time in which I have been writing this article about um, the Garland Fund and the NAACP, so I began writing this article in, in 2013. Um, and so over that time, the Black Lives Matter movement has has grown tremendously, gained steam, as well as has received a lot of funding. And it's been interesting for me to watch it at the very beginnings, um, mainstream philanthropy kind of taking a little bit of a hands-off role, like, whoa, what are these young people? Like, what is this issue? Um, I This is not necessarily who we really want to think about funding. And then to, let's say, perhaps three years ago, when if you're doing kind of social justice, if you're a foundation who's doing social justice and or racial justice type of work, you, of course, fund <laughs> one of the Black Lives Matter uh, organizations, whether it's technical assistance, whether it's right. Ford right now has this big racial justice initiative. Um, and they have been consulting a number of Black Lives Matter activists. And so I am interested in the role of funders in the contemporary Black Lives Matter movement and focusing on a few different organizations over about a 10-year time span and wanting to understand um, if if the way in which activists and leaders in these movements talk about what they want, um, does that change? Does their strategy change? Does their agenda change? Um, And I'm going to try to focus on that moving forwards. Um, So I'm excited to see how that develops. completely unsure now <laughs> yeah well i'm sure i'll speak for everybody listening when i say that sounds absolutely fascinating it's kind of absolutely <laughs> front and center some of the questions that i think are most interesting uh, in and around philanthropy at the moment um so i'll you know be really keen to 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 keep an eye out for that um but anyway i just wanted to say thank, thanks ever so much for coming on the podcast it's absolutely great to to chat to you um and i definitely wish you you know all the best with uh, all your future uh, work and research thank you so much Okay, great. Well, thanks uh, very much again to Megan for making the time to come on the podcast. Um, Particularly, I should flag up because I managed to introduce some confusion about time zones and British summertime into the situation, which meant that 
we didn't end up recording at quite the time Megan thought we were were going to be and she was extremely nice about it um so thanks again to her for bearing with me on that um as you can probably hear from uh, the tone of the interview I was a huge fan of the paper that she wrote so I thoroughly recommend um that everybody go away and uh, and read that and I'll put links in the show notes to that uh, and other kind of related material that you can check out um if you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society uh, check out the giving thought pages at the CAF website um, if you want uh, shorter versions of the same thing with uh, added snark and hashtags, then check uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Um, if you've got ideas for things we could talk about on the podcast in the future or people I could interview, um, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, uh, just like, subscribe, uh, tell all your friends about this podcast, give us some nice reviews on iTunes and Spotify and all that kind of thing. Uh, And other than that, I will see you next time. Okay, bye. (laughs) 